Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Chase Lockmiller, co-founder and CEO of Crusoe Energy. Crusoe is addressing the climate impact caused by flared natural gas by converting it into cheap electricity to power a range of data services. The company's beachhead application is powering cryptocurrency mining, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum, with electricity generated from methane emissions that would have otherwise been released to the atmosphere. Directionally, they've got plans to move into other forms of high-performance computing and also into other sources beyond flared natural gas, such as wind. We have a fascinating discussion in this episode about the Crusoe origin story, about Chase's path that led him first down the cryptocurrency rabbit hole and then at the intersection of cryptocurrency and flared natural gas. We talk about the origin story for the company, where they started, their progress to date, their long vision, and what to expect from them in the coming months and years. We also have a great discussion about clean energy in general, what it will take to decarbonize our global economy, where cryptocurrency fits into the picture, and specifically, Crusoe's vision for what role they can play to help. Chase, welcome to the show. Love to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making the time. It's crazy because Bitcoin and blockchain are just getting so much attention these days. And of course, climate change is getting so much attention these days. And not only is Crusoe Energy focused kind of squarely at that intersection, but I don't know anyone that's got more scale than you. So super excited to have you on the show. And gosh, we sure have a lot to talk about. Yeah, definitely excited to be here and love kind of the whole community that you built with my climate journey and really excited to kind of share our story. Well, maybe that's a good segue. So taking it from the top, what is Crusoe Energy? 
Crusoe Energy, you know, we started the business originally focused on solving this problem in the oil and gas industry. Which problem? It's called flaring. Flaring results when oil companies drill oil wells and they oil is the primary product that they're you know, looking to get and they produce natural gas as a byproduct of that production. And when they don't have midstream infrastructure to basically transport that gas to a downstream market where it can be sold and consumed, what they're left with is their next best option is either to vent it or flare it. Venting it is terrible for the environment. Methane is an incredibly potent greenhouse gas, you know, traps 84 times more heat in the atmosphere than CO2. And flaring it, they also, you know, end up venting quite a bit of the gas as well, just because flares don't fully combust the methane. Flare meaning set it on fire? Exactly. It's just a big flaming fireball out in the middle of the oil field. This has been a problem and, you know, this has been a if you look at the EIA website, you can see you know, the, the history of flaring. It's not a new problem. It's existed since we've been producing oil and gas. To me, it's kind of a low-hanging fruit in the energy transition. So you have initiatives like the World Bank has an initiative to end routine flaring by 2030. It's been signed on by you know, many different large global oil companies. But the reality is there aren't great solutions for it. It's a tough problem to solve in an economic capacity. And what Crusoe's solution was, was we could actually... Instead of having them flare that gas or vent that gas, we're able to capture it on site and then co-locate data centers alongside the oil and gas production and then utilize that gas on site to generate power to power these, these mobile modular data centers for you know, high-performance computing and, and digital currency mining uh, applications. So putting aside the emissions footprint and the harm for the collective good and the planet, what are the advantages and disadvantages of flaring versus venting for these oil and gas companies? If they're able to flare the gas entirely, at least they're able to... Methane obviously has a much more potent greenhouse gas, so, so that is a benefit. However, both from a climate impact standpoint, as well as kind of a... You don't want just like a lot of methane being leaked. It creates a fire hazard for everyone. Flaring is, a, is better than venting, but it's still not a super effective way to deal with a natural resource. It's almost a, a tragedy that the quantity of gas that's being flared globally is not being captured for any sort of beneficial use. So... You know, putting some numbers in perspective here, globally, we flare about 14.5 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas. Domestically here in the United States, we're about 10% of that, so about 1.4 billion cubic feet a day. 14.5 billion cubic feet a day from a power perspective could generate about 65 gigawatts of power, basically power Africa. So really substantial global waste that's occurring, I and mean, it's creating a, you know, a large climate impact alongside being an incredible waste of, of that natural resource. Okay, we've talked a bit about the problem, but what's the journey that led to the origin of Crusoe? And, and maybe going back in the, in the Wayback Machine, I mean, what's your journey? How did you get to the seat that you're sitting in? You know, I started my career in sort of the quantitative finance space. Undergrad, I did, I studied math and physics. And you know, for graduate school, I studied computer science with a focus on artificial intelligence. I used a lot of those AI modeling techniques to basically build these large-scale stock forecasting models, which were you know, basically big AI and machine learning models that would forecast you know, future stock prices. And then we build these automated trading strategies that would capitalize on those in sort of a high-frequency and statistical arbitrage manner. You know, in doing that, I was always a big user of large-scale computing resources. So you know, these big grid computing infrastructure that requires tremendous number of CPUs and GPUs, and also demand quite a bit of power. So power was kind of the, one of the big costs associated with operating those assets. I ended up leaving that and getting really deep into the digital asset and cryptocurrency space. 
I was an early partner at a, a hedge fund called Polychain Capital. I was really intrigued by the notion of creating a non-central bank controlled global currency. It always kind of made a lot of sense to me, just the way the Federal Reserve kind of operates never really. And as soon as we kind of went off the gold standard as a for the US dollar, I think it, it kind of transitioned into this monetary policy is governed by sort of the whims of you know, a handful of people. And that didn't always make a ton of sense to me. So the idea of being able to protect purchasing power through an inflation schedule that's defined in software really resonated with me. I had always been kind of following the space and then you know, ended up meeting this guy, Olaf Carlson Wee, who was the first employee at Coinbase. And he was leading to set up this fund you know, to invest exclusively in digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And so that was in 2016 that you know he set up the fund. I joined him in early 2017. I thought it was a very interesting transition that applied a lot of the things that you know I was good at and the experience that I had in traditional markets, but to kind of this brand new asset class that was just emerging and just kind of coming to be. So that was a really cool opportunity. I ended up joining him and that fund grew quite a bit and has continued to grow the growth and you know adoption and usage in the digital assets and, and cryptocurrency space. I ended up leaving Polychain in 2018, and there was like a personal dream of mine to climb Mount Everest. And so I, I spent about two months in Nepal climbing Mount Everest. It was a great moment in time for me to kind of clear my head and think about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life and what inspired me. That's what most people do when they want to reflect. They just go climb Mount Everest. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I go on a three-mile run or five-mile run personally, yeah. and I feel pretty good about that, or I did until, <laughs> until having this discussion. It was always a dream of mine. You know, I was inspired. I had, this, I had this teacher in middle school and her husband was this blind guy named Eric Weinmayer. Eric became the first blind man to climb the seven summits, so the highest peak on each continent. And when she was my teacher, he was actually training to climb Mount Everest. And I thought it was the coolest thing like I'd ever heard of. And so I was kind of following his journey. And that ever since that experience, it really kind of you know stuck with me and was something that I always wanted to go for personally. Well, we could have a whole episode just about that for purposes of focus. You climbed Everest and then how did the dots end up connecting and in what order and in what time frame to, for, for Crusoe to come to be? While I was in Everest, I was reflecting on kind of ways that I could contribute towards creating a huge impact for humanity at large. The space I kept coming back to was sort of this infrastructure layer of computing. So a lot of the work that I'd done in, in sort of the AI space, a lot of these Nonlinear modeling techniques, they're not new. They've been iterated on, and there's been a lot of research and innovation sort of taking place in the space on, on kind of how to make them work effectively. People were using neural networks in the 1980s, but it's only been recently that we've been able to really use them effectively at, at a large scale, largely because you know, we've had an increase in access and availability of data, much bigger data sets that we're capturing, and two, incredible amounts of computational power that can train these big, big models over these large data sets. Think about kind of the future of AI and the future of its ability to impact humanity. A lot of it is, you know, its ability to support bigger models with more computational power. There's a way to kind of, you know, help level up humanity at large. To me, it's like, you know, helping drive that innovation, make it more cost effective. So this was kind of one thing that I was thinking about. And then secondarily, you know, I was thinking about sort of this infrastructure layer of computing that was supporting this whole new ecosystem of digital global, you know, this whole new digital global monetary ecosystem that was evolving in the digital asset landscape. And when you look at Bitcoin, what gives Bitcoin value and gives it security is this infrastructure layer of computing that is supported by this primitive group of miners. And the miners are effectively just running these 
computationally intensive nodes um, on this distributed network. And all of those things require tremendous amounts of power. So I was thinking about this broad, where there were opportunities to add value. And when I came back from my Everest expedition, and I was spending time in Denver, where I grew up, and my co-founder, Coley Kavnis, he reached out to me. He was a high school friend of mine that had spent you know, the bulk of his career in the energy industry. And he reached out to me to you know, hear, hear about my Everest trip. And we actually ended up going on a climbing trip together in the Rockies to kind of do the whole download on it. And we ended up spending the bulk of that day actually discussing flaring as a problem. It was something that Coley had been dealing with firsthand, operating an upstream oil and gas company. Coley had gone to Middlebury as an undergrad but came from sort of a third-generation oil and gas family. Middlebury, he was like highly influenced by a lot of the big environmental movement that was taking place there at the time. So 350.org started there with Bill McKibben. And I think Coley, you know, his mindset was really shifted by his experience there at Middlebury and, you know, really turned him into, you know, being an environmentalist that started his career building. He ended up spending the first few years of his career building geothermal power plants and, you know, eventually kind of made his way back into the, into the oil industry with his family. For him, it was a big struggle, especially dealing with a problem like flaring that just felt like such a blatant waste with a pretty significant environmental impact. So we started discussing this whole problem of flaring. Honestly, I didn't really know that much about the industry at that point or you know, the ins and outs of how it worked. I'd never spent time in an oil field. When he started explaining a lot of this to me, like my mind was blown. I was like, this is insane. Just an egregious amount of waste that was unfolding on a global scale. I was kind of coming into it with this perspective of like, how can we make computation cheaper? And one of the primary inputs to that is the power cost. And so we came up with this idea that if we could sort of solve one industry's problem with another by sort of unlocking value from that stranded energy resource with the power of computation, that was kind of our key insight that, you know, transferring data oftentimes is much easier and cheaper than transferring, you know, either power or gas or you know, any, anything else. So, you know, that's actually why we named the company Crusoe Energy. It was named after Robinson Crusoe, who was stranded on a desert island and had to channel, you know, a very innovative mindset with his resources there on that desert island to, to survive. We try to channel that same, you know, innovative mindset in the vein of how we manage natural resources as well as, you know, renewable energy resources. There's all these things that you wanted to do with data and compute, both on the cryptocurrency side with that infrastructure, as well as just high-performance computing to support AI and, and other high-bandwidth activities on the traditional compute side. And meanwhile, you saw that flaring was, was producing so much waste and that if that energy was harnessed, it could be utilized potentially to power these things that are so energy-hungry. So once you got there... And you saw, oh, here's this energy being wasted, and here's these things that need that energy. Was the solution obvious? If so, why hadn't it been done before? I mean, how did you go about coming from identifying almost like these two sides of a marketplace to actually knowing what to do about it? We asked ourselves that a lot. I mean, when we came up with this idea initially, we initially self-funded a pilot. So, you know, I made a big investment to kind of get us up and started. You know, for me, it was an unfolding, like how big of a problem is this flaring thing? You know, is this something that, you know, people would be willing to pay to get rid of the gas or how much of a thorn in the side of these companies is it? And if we present an elegant solution, is that create value for anyone? 
So that was kind of the initial question that we went to kind of answer with our early pilot. We found that, you know, there were a lot of oil companies that really struggled with this and were really looking for economically viable and efficient solutions to be able to get rid of that gas in a responsible manner. Why do they care? Increasingly, there's more regulatory pressure and blaring's generally regulated on a state-by-state basis. Getting that regulatory pressure to comply with the standards that get set, you know, that's a big problem. Is the data there to even measure how they're doing against that accurately? No, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good in order to you know, be a licensed operator within the state, certain data that they have to give to the regulators. I mean, that being said, there are definitely like incidents that are not being well monitored or well recorded. And this is one of the big issues with flaring. So like the EDF did a study recently down in the Permian Basin down in Texas, and their finding was that, you know, 7% of the flares that were supposed to be combusting the gas weren't even lit. And they were just venting the methane directly into the atmosphere. Coming back to that climate impact of that, let alone the local hazard that that presents with all that combustible gas, that methane has a massive footprint in sort of accelerating the short-term warming effects of climate change. So you mentioned regulatory is one reason that they care. Are there other reasons that they care? Or is that the primary one? Within the current market climate for capital markets, I think there's every single oil company is looking at ways that they can you know, help improve their environmental performance. And you're seeing this kind of across the board. Flaring and flare reduction is a huge goal for you know, almost every publicly traded oil company at this point. So it's regulatory and then it's like branding halo? Is that... I mean, it's branding Halo, but it's also just like social license to operate, right? I mean, I think people recognize this as a huge problem that people really shouldn't be flaring, but they're doing it at a global scale in very, very significant quantities. So there's pressure from capital allocators for people to improve their environmental performance, which I think is kind of a net positive. Are you talking about the initiatives of the Black Rocks and, and that kind of thing where they're like we had Mindy Luber from Ceres came on the show and I know she's kind of and her organization is corralling Black Rock and a bunch of these other institutional investors to exert pressure from that direction. So does that actually work? Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. I think ESG used to be more of a, a tick the box type item for you know these large public companies, but Increasingly, it's becoming very core to their long-term strategy. And you're seeing this kind of, you know, in many different, you know, avenues across, you know, big publicly traded oil companies. Okay. So you got a pilot going and you wanted to know, are the oil companies motivated and are there economical things that you could do with this flared natural gas? And so one thing you learned is that it's a big problem that they're motivated to try to do something about. What else were the key learnings there? The other key learnings are like, could we actually do this? Like, could we, you know, set up the data center, operate it effectively remotely? What are the things that we need to have in place? What are the staffing that we need to put in place? How do we network it? Networking has been a big point of investment for us as a business, especially as we, you know, expand beyond applications of just Bitcoin mining into other applications like, you know, high-performance computing and rendering. All of these were sort of unanswered questions, and I think our journey has largely been about solving a lot of small independent problems, those independent solutions really compounding on themselves to create a bigger business that solves problems at sort of a bigger scale. Can you talk a bit about the process of taking this flared natural gas and using it to power these data centers and and also what's special or differentiated about it relative to anyone else that might go and see your success and try to follow suit? We generally set up on site that all of our equipment is designed to be mobile and modular. So we have, you know, individual data centers that we ship to the site, and then we have power generation equipment that we ship to the site as well. 
they basically have a gas line that feeds into this big flare stack, which is just kind of like this big tower that, you know, this, this giant fireball sitting on top of it. We have a bunch of photos and videos kind of on our website. A few years ago, having never spent time in an oil field to like seeing this firsthand, I was like, holy cow, this is insane. Seeing it happen, like driving around to the Williston Basin in North Dakota, just kind of seeing how prevalent it was just kind of everywhere. It was just kind of uh, shocking. We take a T off of that pipeline that feeds their flare line, and then the gas sort of feeds into our system. And then we use that gas to generate power. In doing that, the gas engines that we use do what's called stoichiometric combustion, which means they're getting the right air to fuel ratio to fully combust the methane. So we end up getting a you know 99.99% combustion efficiency with the methane, as opposed to you know something closer to you know 90 to 93% of the methane getting combusted in a flare. That methane savings is actually a massive reduction in CO2 equivalent for the actual climate impact of flaring compared to using digital flare mitigation. Putting it in perspective, one of those systems on an annual basis is a net reduction of 8,000 tons of CO2 equivalent per year. By using the flared natural gas, it is getting consumed by the data center rather than released into the sky? You end up getting full combustion of the methane. I'd say here from a climate impact standpoint, it's not too dissimilar from something like biogas that's emitted from cattle or livestock, if you're able to capture that and combust it, it's actually a massive environmental improvement compared to just letting cows welch and fart into the atmosphere directly. So that's the story there. What use cases are you utilizing the flared natural gas for today? And what kind of scale are we talking about in terms of how much that natural gas is being utilized? We have about 60 units deployed today. The bulk of that footprint is across Williston Basin in North Dakota. So when you look at flaring as a problem, you know, it's kind of domestically the North Dakota, Montana area called the Williston Basin. That's kind of one of the biggest you know, flaring areas in the country, as well as West Texas is called the Permian Basin. That's the other major flaring market in the U.S. We're mostly deployed up in that North Dakota, Montana region. We also have operations in Wyoming and Colorado, and we're planning to expand into the Permian later this year. Secondarily, a lot of the technology that we've deployed is useful in other capacities that are not sort of a waste methane recovery setup. So we actually have a big project that we're working on in the wind energy space where we're able to actually co-locate data centers alongside a very large-scale wind farm. And in doing so, we sort of provide this buyer of last resort that helps wind energy companies underwrite development of more new projects and helps accelerate the transition to a more renewably powered grid. The real problem there is this asynchronicity that you have between how renewables generate power and how humans consume power. Wind turbines are going to generate power kind of when the the wind is blowing. Humans are going to consume power when they get hot and they want to turn on their AC or when they get home and they want to charge their EV or turn on their TV. Those two things aren't necessarily always in sync. You have this sort of problem that wind farms often don't have a marginal buyer, an electron that's being generated, which is why you're seeing at times negative power pricing in markets like the ERCOT in Texas. But then you also have this problem where you actually don't have enough deployed capacity to meet sort of the peak demand. So we saw this happen earlier this year when you know there's a big freeze in Texas or when it got very hot this summer, we saw power pricing spike up to $9,000 a megawatt hour. This is a very crazy price for consumers to pay for power. And part of that is there just wasn't enough capacity deployed onto the grid. So by being able to create a flexible, interruptible load, you can actually create an opportunity to accelerate the development of more projects 
and more renewable power to power a grid like ERCOT. So the six units that you have deployed today, are they exclusively being used for Bitcoin mining? No. So we have a handful of units that are being used today for high-performance computing. We're sort of operating in a private beta right now. We're going to be launching that to the public here uh, at some point in Q4, which we're pretty excited about. But the idea is having a low-cost, carbon-negative computing cloud environment. But primarily Bitcoin mining today? Primarily Bitcoin mining today. Bitcoin mining has been a great tool for us to get to scale and help operators that are dealing with flaring issues at a meaningful scale. It's been a great way for us to kind of meet that demand and meet that need. What's the relationship and how does the money change hands with the oil and gas companies that have the flared natural gas? And then maybe talk a bit about the Bitcoin mining operation and how that side of the business works. Generally, our relationship with them is we set up a gas purchase agreement with them. We set up on site, we set up a gas purchase agreement so that the commodity ownership changes hands. And that's important primarily from royalty owner's perspective, because typically there's many different people that have an interest in in the actual royalties that are associated with a, a certain acreage position. You need to have some number to point to that says, okay, there was gas produced on this site, it was sold for this much. Is it a consequential number or is it more just a token just for the legal agreement? Typically for us, we're not purchasing gas at a market rate or anywhere close to it. It's it's sort of a token amount to basically manage this transfer of ownership for royalty owners. And they do that so they can essentially, they are getting help satisfying the regulators and with their brand halo and with their social license essentially for free. And what you get is you get the energy to power the Bitcoin mining and high performance computing There aren't a lot of good alternatives to flaring. One is building more pipelines. That takes time and significant amounts of capital investment. That often doesn't make economic sense for the operators between the long lead times and sort of the negative EV sort of investment that they're making. That's not a great option for them. There are other options like liquefying the gas on site into LNG and then transporting the liquids. That's very, very expensive. Pressing the gas on site and transporting that CNG is another alternative. But again, neither of those are very economic. We present an alternative that's mobile, modular, highly economic for them. Can you talk a bit about Bitcoin mining for anyone that isn't familiar with just how it works? And is it one size fits all for all Bitcoin mining operations? Or are there important distinctions related to your approach or even one approach from another? The way the Bitcoin blockchain works is that transactions that occur between peers on the Bitcoin network get batched into these transactions um, that occur roughly every 10 minutes. If I wanted to send you one Bitcoin, I would publish that transaction to the network and say, hey, I want to send Jason one Bitcoin. And that would basically get folded into the next batch of transactions. Now, in order for that batch of transactions to get processed, what happens is the miners are searching for a particular solution to this mathematical puzzle, which is very computationally complex to solve. One of the miners on this distributed network of computing nodes finds that solution and they say, hey, everybody, aha, I found the solution. Here it is. And everyone can check it and make sure that it's valid very quickly and easily. And so once that takes place, everybody basically creates consensus that this batch of transactions has been processed. Chase's one Bitcoin has been moved to JSON. And so, you know, that's kind of what's happening behind the scenes of Bitcoin blockchain. The miners make money in two ways. They get paid. Each of those transactions has an associated transaction fee. And secondarily, there's what's called a block reward, which is newly minted currency that gets minted on each block. So right now, the block reward is 6.25 Bitcoin. 
So for each new Bitcoin, you know, the miner gets rewarded with this large block reward as well as transaction fees that are associated with that block. But at a $50,000 Bitcoin price, it's a pretty uh, hefty uh, financial reward for each new block that gets found. So is the primary business for Crusoe, at least as an entry point to the market, this Bitcoin mining operation? Currently, that's our big profit driver. You know, it has a lot of unique characteristics that make it useful for solving some of these energy infrastructure challenges that you know, we're, we're faced both in, in renewables as well as waste recovery and sort of legacy fossil fuel businesses. A couple of the amazing characteristics of it is, one, it's highly distributed. That's useful for you know, solving a problem like flaring, where you, know, you have 6,000 flares domestically here in the United States. That could be 6,000 different gross-scale data centers that could be deployed to help solve that challenge. A second great quality about Bitcoin mining is that it's highly interruptible. When you think about a lot of different computing tasks, particularly around cloud computing, if I said, hey, I'm going to interrupt your process sporadically, that might be a showstopper for many different applications. I mean, you're not going to run a website on a service that you know, basically says, hey, we're going to randomly shut you down here and there. But for Bitcoin mining, because it's distributed, because it's highly decentralized, it's very, very robust to individual node interruptions, which makes it super useful for things like grid stabilization. So, you know, I talked a little bit about this wind power project that we're focused on. In that project, the beauty of what we're able to do is we're able to help overbuild renewable infrastructure to the standard baseload so that it can meet the demands of peak demand without having to use fossil fuel powered peak plants. And then it's so energy intensive that I can just like suck up all the difference whenever it's not being utilized off peak. Exactly. But it can be curtailed in moments of like peak demand. Why do you think that Bitcoin gets such a bad rap from the climate world? So I think there's a couple of different reasons. I think one is that people argue that Bitcoin mining is not creating any real utility because they don't find value in Bitcoin. But there's millions of people around the globe or you know, hundreds of millions of people around the globe that do find utility in Bitcoin. So it's, it's tough to like make the argument that Bitcoin has no value when there's literally a market price today that you can go buy and exchange Bitcoin for dollars for. And I think what they would say is they would say, well, those are just speculators that are it's like a big MLM system where things will come home to roost eventually because there's no real utility other than trading. I don't want to necessarily get into the philosophical debates of does Bitcoin have value or not. I think if someone is vehemently opposed to Bitcoin having any value, like we're, we're probably just not going to see eye to eye, and that's totally fine. Bitcoin can create tremendous value for the future of energy infrastructure is in sort of facilitating this alignment of Bitcoin mining, and that is an interruptible, mobile, highly distributed workload with the future of the climate and the future of energy infrastructure. And that's really part of our mission at Crusoe, right? So if we can help the oil industry reduce their emissions for ongoing operations during the sort of whole energy transition phase that we're going through, and we can simultaneously help accelerate the development of more renewable projects that create a more renewably powered grid, I think independent if you have any negative view on Bitcoin, I think that's a huge positive outcome for just the overall energy infrastructure of the world. The energy argument is funny to me because when you look at like the global footprint of Facebook servers, you could say, oh, wow, like the carbon footprint of these things is insane. Like the amount of energy that's being consumed by Facebook is as much as Poland. I, I don't have the numbers, but it's an obscene amount of power that's being consumed by global data centers and global servers. I mean, globally, data centers consume about 5% of the global power production. And a lot of that's going towards you scrolling your Instagram feed. I read a statistic the other day, and it's about 
one and a half grams of carbon per minute spent on Instagram. And to me, social media is actually the biggest tax of them all. I would say it actually creates no negative social value, but that's maybe a different debate. I think when comparing creating a new decentralized global monetary ecosystem and creating a social media, global social media network, I actually find a lot more value in the Bitcoin network than I do in you know, Facebook. I just want to make sure I understand. So today, Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy. Is the message that it adds so much value that the energy is worth it? Or is the message more that it does add value, yes, but that there's also a path for that energy or emissions footprint to be reduced over time? If the latter, then what does that look like? I think it's both. So I think the sign of a thriving society is you know, the ability to generate and consume energy. You look at the acceleration of human quality of life, acceleration of the improvement of human quality of life that's happened over the last 150 years, largely in part is driven by our ability to harness energy, harness natural resources. The future of that is going to be driven by our ability to harness renewable sources of energy that create a sustainable way for us to benefit from, you know, the positive impact of being able to generate and, and harness, you know, large-scale energy sources. Now, what I view from a Bitcoin standpoint is, one, it's the spend on energy is worth it because it creates security for a non-centrally managed digital monetary asset, which I think is a very useful thing for society at large. And there are hundreds of millions of people around the world that tend to agree with that. But secondarily, I think that the incentive system of the Bitcoin protocol is such that if we can harness it in the right way, can actually help accelerate more renewable energy development and a faster transition to a more renewably powered grid. And it can also help be a net emissions reducer for the fossil fuel industry, which is what we're doing with digital flare mitigation. It sounds like today, primarily, as an entry point for the company, it's flared natural gas and it's Bitcoin mining. But directionally, you mentioned this pilot around wind. So there's some other essentially ways that you could get energy and utilize it to power applications, whether it be Bitcoin or something else. But then there's also a path from Bitcoin. You mentioned high-performance computing, and maybe there's other applications over time. So is that how to think about it, that you've got Bitcoin and you've got flared natural gas, and there's more applications over time, and there's more energy sources over time? Exactly. So Crusoe's mission is to build a large-scale clean computing business that aligns the future of computing infrastructure with the future of the planet. So we do that by helping reduce emissions from the fossil fuel industry with computing infrastructure and by sort of helping accelerate more renewable development with entirely renewably powered data centers. The data center applications that we're focused on today are primarily very energy intensive ones. So digital currency mining is definitely one of them. I'm training AI models and rendering applications. They're in a pilot phase for us right now, but we're going to sort of launch a broader scale cloud services platform that's going to be available here in Q4. So the Bitcoin mining, it powers Bitcoin mining, but it's you doing the mining and you being Crusoe that benefits from the economics of that. For this high-performance computing, will it be the same? Will it also be for your applications that you own, or, or is this a high-performance computing platform in the way that, say, Amazon is, where you've got customers that utilize Crusoe to power what they want to do and they pay you in a SaaS model? It's the second. So we are building this for third-party customers. We've been working with you know, a handful of 
research institutions like MIT to basically get you know the early product development piece in place. But our goal is to be able to help researchers power their computing workloads, one, in a way that's super clean, environmentally friendly, and two, in a way that is cost effective. So you know, I think there's this notion that when something's cleaner, it has to be more expensive. And that notion is not necessarily right. For energy-intensive computing workloads, we can provide a service that's both cleaner and cheaper than existing offerings. I have the same question, but I guess pointed at those two different sides of the marketplace. So on the energy side, what are the criteria that are the same if you look at flared natural gas and wind? And are those set criteria that you would look at for any other expansion path of other energy sources you might utilize over time? And then which ones are specific to the energy source that you're working with? And then I have that same question in terms of Bitcoin mining versus high performance computing versus anything else you might power over time. So for example, you're utilizing flared natural gas, primary use case with the 60 something units that you have, but you've got this pilot now to use wind instead of flared natural gas. Is everything else the same? Like, does it matter if it's flared natural gas or wind, or do you have to rejigger things and have a different process and have different skill sets around the table? And in other words, how modular is it? I don't know if I'm phrasing it right, as you go from one energy source to the next. Each power source is inherently different. We have a whole process that we go through. It's like an environmental approval process for any project that we're going to do. And the criteria for that, particularly working with oil and gas companies, is is this a net reduction in emissions compared to what would happen without Crusoe being there? And if the answer is yes, we'll do the project. If the answer is no, we're not going to do the project. And the reason for that is that it can be a slippery slope working with some of these operators and, and trying to be true to that core ESG mission that, that we really have as a business because we've been approached by a number of operators that have stranded gas fields. They have gas wells that they've drilled that gas is the product they're trying to monetize. And, you know, they're not monetizing it because maybe they don't like the gas prices, maybe they don't like their cost to connect into the grid or whatever, but they're interested in basically utilizing that gas to mine Bitcoin with and sort of monetize it. In that case, in that specific scenario, we would not do that project because that gas otherwise would just stay in the ground, which is what we think is probably the best use for it otherwise. In the case of flare mitigation, what we're doing is we're identifying sites that would otherwise be flaring. And we bring our technology on site to be a net reduction in that emissions footprint, which I think is a, it's nuanced, but it's really, really important to our long-term mission here as a company. So that's kind of like the criteria we look for on the flare gas projects we evaluate. On the renewable side, you know, we've looked at a bunch of different types of projects and wind is going to be the first of this type. They all kind of have a similar flavor and a similar theme. And it depends on if it's an intermittent source like wind or solar, or if it's a baseload source like, you know, geothermal or hydro. The way in which we kind of work with them can be somewhat different. In the case of these stranded wind projects, what we're really looking for is either wind assets that have been overbuilt that lack transmission to kind of get out of a certain zone or a certain region, or areas that are just overbuilt for a large portion of the time, in which case like the effective power price that the wind operator is getting in many different cases is, is actually a negative price. They're actually paying to get rid of marginal electrons because there's literally no buyer for them. But there are these moments of peak demand where we can actually curtail our workload and help them sort of monetize the wind asset and help the grid be more stable with entirely renewably powered energy. I think so. So what I'm hearing is basically that you set up shop on site at the source of whatever the energy is that you're 
using and you find valuable applications of it and you look for energy sources or pockets of energy sources that would have otherwise been going to waste. Spot on. Always looking for how we can eliminate waste in the system. And we think that having a distributed network of flexible computing workloads is a great way to plug a lot of those gaps. We've also looked at other renewable assets ranging from solar, geothermal, hydro, as well as some interesting nuclear opportunities as well. So a lot of interesting stuff to be done out there. If you look at the landscape and the transition that we need to go through with energy in general, what are the biggest blockers or artery cloggers, if you will, that are making our progress slower? And what could be changed to help unclog those arteries and accelerate the transition? I think specifically I'm asking about stuff that is outside of the scope of Crusoe control. I mean, one of the biggest things, obviously, is grid-scale battery storage or you know, grid-scale storage of power can really help accelerate the adoption and you know, utility of a lot of these intermittent renewables like wind and solar. That's actually one area that we feel data centers can help fill as well because you deal with this problem where when the wind is blowing, there's no marginal buyer for power. And it's sort of a good problem to have as a society. It means like you know, we have sort of this excess supply of unused power. It creates difficulty for new project developers to build additional projects given, you know, there's already sort of moments of no demand. So batteries help fix this, but, you know, I think there's a long way for us to kind of go in that regard. I know there's a lot of really cool, interesting startups that are tackling that challenge, but, you know, we really believe it's going to require a multifaceted approach that's not just a silver bullet of, you know, magic battery solution. And where does government fit into all this? What are the biggest risks as it relates to government and policy to the Crusoe business? And what are the biggest opportunities as well where they could be an accelerant to your efforts? The biggest risks, I would say the regulatory climate for the digital currency space is constantly sort of evolving. Most people you speak with would say, you know, kind of the genie's out of the bottle at this point and the digital currencies are really here to stay. Managing that and just kind of staying on top of that is definitely like a big component of regulatory engagement efforts. The other side of it actually is on the flaring side for digital flare mitigation. That is typically governed and managed on a state level basis. We think that there should be more regulations around flaring. It is crazy in certain places that it's not regulated more. That could be potentially a big positive for Crusoe and a big positive for the climate impact of flaring. In North Dakota, it's governed by a group called the North Dakota Industrial Commission. So they currently have a gas capture rule, which tells operators they need to capture 91% of the gas that they produce. Having these incentives in place has really helped improve the overall flaring performance. I think in 2019, the state 19% of the gas that was produced. So it's really a substantial waste that's you know, happening to last year, which obviously helped by the fact that you know, a lot of wells were kind of shut in due to COVID and whatnot. But their flaring percentage dropped down to uh, about 7%, which I think was a huge positive for you know, the environment, a huge positive for the space. So those are the two big regulatory things that we're focused on. And given that you sit at the intersection of Bitcoin and energy and high-performance computing, would you say that you've got active dialogues going across all three of those communities? I mean, I'm curious, if you look at the climate community in particular, how much time do you spend with them? How much time do they spend 
thinking about you? And is that an active dialogue? And also, how do you want it to be going forward, given that there's a number of them that listen to the show? What message do you have for them? And who do you want to hear from, if anybody? How can they be helpful to you? We raised our Series B earlier this year. With that funding, I think it's helped us invest more in you know, having a bigger public presence. Early on, we were just so focused on execution that you know, we weren't really thinking about you know, engagement with uh, broader communities and whatnot. I think we are particularly around just kind of getting people excited about the problems that we're trying to solve with flaring and the problems that we're trying to solve in, in helping accelerate the transition to a more renewably powered grid with large-scale computing resources. You know, we definitely want to engage more with the climate community as well as the high-performance computing community is a, a new community for us as well. You know, we're launching this product more publicly here this fall. We're hoping to engage with more people that have large-scale computing workloads and that care about the climate impact of those workloads. It definitely is a unique intersection, but we think that you know, more stuff is happening, you know, more development is happening with mobile applications, more things are happening remotely with video chat. It's never been more important for us to align the energy impact of our computing infrastructure than it is today. It's sort of existential, that being power usage that's growing at an exponential rate at a time when you know we really are at an important crossroads for the future of humanity and the future of the planet as it relates to how we manage our, the climate footprint of everything that we do. Jeez, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, or do you have any parting words for listeners? Because this is mostly a climate-focused community, I think sometimes people can automatically conflate something that's working with the oil and gas industry as like being bad. The oil and gas industry, when you look at the progress of humanity that's unfolded in the last 150 years, I think more than any other industry has, has helped drive that. And I think there's a future energy world that doesn't rely on fossil fuels. And I think that's something that we're all sort of interested in kind of building towards. But being pragmatic about everything, there is this moment of transition, right? There's this moment of how do we effectively transition to that new world of new energy? And part of it is investing in those new technologies and those new solutions and sort of helping accelerate that transition. But another part of it is trying to minimize the climate impact of the fossil fuel footprint that we're going to need to require for decades to come in order to support the human quality of life that we've all come to appreciate, know, love, and rely upon for our modern existence. So sometimes it can be nuanced in how people kind of view that. I think there's important problems to solve in kind of working with the oil industry to help kind of steward them into this you know, next chapter of human energy. Well, this is great. You've got such a different perspective than we've had on the show before. And that's one of the goals of the show is just to kind of shine a light on lots of different perspectives and help inform and build empathy and build bridges and make connections and just get increased collective understanding so that we can all move faster to accelerate the transition, which we're all aligned around is, is everybody's goal. So Chase, this was awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to you and the whole Crusoe Energy team. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. 
And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.